Another installment of the Emeroid Digest podcast. I am your host, Chuma Obineme. I'm a PGY5 fellow at uh, Emory University in our GI program. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Jason Brown, who um, I feel like we just don't know enough about. He doesn't have a Twitter. I don't know if he has an Instagram, maybe a Facebook. Don't answer that. Uh, But... T- tell us, tell us, I guess, a little bit about, you know, you and then, you know, your uh, your role at Grady Memorial Hospital. Yeah. Um, so I am Jason Brown. I'm originally from New Orleans, Louisiana. I uh, came to Georgia to do undergraduate at the University of Georgia. And I was going to go back actually to LSU in New Orleans for medical school. But that was the year Hurricane Katrina hit. And so my family moved up here. We flooded and um, I became a medical student at Emory. And loved it so much that I stayed for internal medicine residency and fellowship. And now I'm junior faculty, assistant professor. Um, I practice full time at Grady Memorial Hospital. And I'm the fellowship um, site director for that um, that site. So it's my pleasure to kind of run the educational experience for medical students, residents, and in particular our fellows and help teach you and your awesome colleagues endoscopy, uh, help run the fellows clinic and do consult time. I feel like, I feel like we're, we're starting to get to know a little yeah. bit more about, about Jason here. Um, little by little. Um, so we, we just had a really, really cool interview with, um, Dr. Brian Sauer and, um, who I'm supposed to call Brian. Uh, but, Jason, I don't know, give us, we talked about a lot of different things from, you know, Guatemala to grade methodology, chronic pancreatitis. Um, I don't know, what, what was your sort of uh, overall takeaway from uh, this episode? Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I mean, we, we could have spent a, a solid two or three hours doing it, not, um, but I'm thankful for the hour we had with them. It was interesting as we were talking, um, you know, we came of age in medical school in this evidence-based medicine era where we are taught that data is king and you should have data back up every decision you make. Um, in fact, we applaud ourselves, pat ourselves on the back when we cite papers in our assessment and plans and consult notes and clinic notes. Um, but I, th- I think having this discussion about grade methodology um, is really interesting to me because it shows how you can marry evidence-based medicine and expert opinion and how Grade methodology can make an allowance for lack of high quality evidence, but still come out with a strong recommendation on the other side. And so it's a nice way for us to honor the concept of evidence-based medicine and in a rigorous and and objective fashion, um, sort of show what the data is for a recommendation, but also still say, look, the, the data may be weak, but we feel pretty strongly about this and, and sort of marry those two concepts together. Okay, so now uh, he's trying to give away the whole episode. So without further ado, let's jump to the show. <laughs> hey guys, 
Welcome back to another episode of the Emeroid Digest podcast. Uh, today we have uh, the opportunity to spend some time with Dr. Brian Sauer. Um, I'm just going to give him a little introduction just so you guys have a, a base of, of who he is. So Dr. Sauer is a gastroenterologist with advanced training, uh, currently practicing at, at UVA, University of Virginia. Uh, his research interests are broad, but include eosinophilic esophagitis, uh, quality improvement in the uh, endoscopy suite. Uh, he has a Master of Science in Clinical Research, uh, also from UVA. He founded a Guatemala endoscopy program in 2019, uh, where he leads clinical teams to, to Guatemala on a regular basis. Um, and he has authored uh, numerous uh, GI guidelines and is a, a grade methodologist. Uh, Dr. Sauer, uh, thank you for coming on to the show. We're really happy to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I uh, appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. Thanks so much for your time. Um, you know, one of the things we try to do with this podcast is introduce the concept of mentorship and and try to give trainees and junior faculty sort of a sense of how to build a career in academia. Because some of us, when we're coming through, um, we, it's not immediately clear to us. And so one thing that we like to do is ask how you put that career together, how you sought out that mentorship, how that story played out for you. So we see that you have a, um, an MSCR, uh, you're an advanced endoscopist. There's a, there's a clear academic thread to your training. Did, did that all come together with foresight? Did that come together while you were doing it? How did you go about charting that course? Yeah, no, that's a great question, especially for, for folks at various levels of their training. Um, you know, I, I'll tell you what, I, I think, you know, when you see where somebody's at, I rarely think it's ever a straight path there. And so a lot of times we think, oh, you know, so-and-so knew what they were doing from day one. They, they did this. And, and there, listen, there are some of those folks out there. I'm not one of them, but there are some folks that just can figure that out. Um, I, I wasn't one of those folks. In fact, um, I was going to go into pediatrics for uh, most of medical school and decided to like switch last minute. And um, so, and then I didn't even know I wanted to do GI and, and everybody else is putting applications out there. And I was like, how did you decide already? And, and so, um, you know, I think just it, things just kind of happened and, and, and went forth in, in a lot of different ways. I mean, I think, Maybe I could have been more efficient and, and done done things differently if had I had everything planned out. But I think, you know, we have to be open to just kind of the, the where life takes us a little bit and, and where our interests lie and, and how to get there. And so, um, you know, I started off in fellowship and, and wasn't quite sure, thought I wanted to do academics. And so wanted to do that master's of, of clinical research, because obviously research is part of academic work often. And. Um, so that was super helpful and then, you know, enjoyed the advanced endoscopy and, and so did, did that route as well. Um, and then kind of just, you know, had mentors at, at UVA and elsewhere. I think it's really important to have mentors elsewhere as well. And then, you know, quite frankly, uh, mentors that aren't in medicine are great. You know, mentors in life are great. Um, those are tough to find sometimes when we're busy lives in the hospital, you know, family life, whatever it may be that takes our time. But 
Um, so I think my career just kind of unfolded, not necessarily however I ever thought it would be, but just, you know, hey, this this interests me in the in the grade methodology, which we'll talk to at some point. Um, is a great example of that. I, I got a you know an email from the ACG talk. You know, I thought, wow, that really fits what I enjoy doing and my training, and never would have thought I would have be doing that. And so, um, kind of applied to that and ended up becoming one of the great methodologists for the the ACG. So that stuff kind of just just happened. I don't, I'm probably not as maybe calculated as some and to to make their careers what they are. So. Two follow-up questions. So the, the MSCR, was that something that you uh, pursued during fellowship? Was that part of your fellowship search? Was that when you were junior faculty? And then on the back end, describe what you look for in mentoring relationships. How do you know? Is it sort of a volume game and you, you try a bunch of different folks and some work out? Or are there criteria you're looking for when you were that you'd recommend that folks who are in search of mentors who want to get involved in clinical research should use similar criteria? Yeah. Um, so I um, I did my master's of science in clinical research during fellowship. We had kind of a program where you could spend your second year doing that. And so um, a, a lot of I know academic centers have that option. Um, and so that's what I did most of my second year of fellowship, um, which made it a really, really busy year because you're still doing all the clinical work that you have to do. I still had fellows clinic every every one, one day a week so you're cramming some other stuff into into a short period of time and you're still on call and weekend so it was it was a it was a busier year but it was definitely worth it for that you know to to gain the knowledge of, of that you know listen mentor I, i'm not gonna you know mentorship is a tough tough concept and task for both the mentor and the mentee to kind of get right and maybe there's not really even a right or wrong um and so um you know i think you find the folks that are the ones that that you just jive well you just feel comfortable with i think that's you know that feeling kind of is is important you know criteria i here's my biggest criteria for a mentor uh, a successful mentor, I think, is going to never be a me first person. Mm. Okay. Just like boil it down to just the most simple term. Are they me first or are they others first? And I think mentors that are the best are always have others in mind. They say, hey, why don't you do this? This would be good for you. This, you know, they find their opportunities, not necessarily for themselves, but they say, you know, I saw this and I thought of you. And I want you to just consider this, you know, those are like the not, you know, they're not thinking about the, the mentor is not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about their mentee more so than anything. They don't want the best mentors. They don't want a spotlight on them ever. They want, they get their satisfaction about the spotlight being on their mentee. And so that's tough to find, you know, especially in medicine, we're all, you know, have wanted the spotlight and have had potentially the spotlight shine on us. And, and it's hard to sometimes find that mentor that, that is that, that kind of way. That's a, that's a great sort of concept to introduce this one. That's unique to this conversation. I appreciate that perspective. One last follow-up question in terms of mentorship. Um, did you find success within your home institution training or as junior faculty, or was it 
networking at conferences or 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 being involved in professional organizations yeah i you know i think certainly at your institution there there is you know without a doubt mentors available at your institution i mean finding them is the hard part sometimes or finding the ones that fit and align with your career and finding the others first mentors is even harder to be honest um you know um so definitely at at your own institution um you know I, I think some of the the early committee work that i did for some of the organizations i think was very valuable in finding folks that hey that person or, or just seems to be someone that i feel like i could run things by and could you know could be a mentor um i think that's been the best you know net certainly net you know the, the the meetings and networking and and we all kind of meet folks and all that kind of stuff but getting at it to a to a deeper level is just, just mm. so tough especially at the conferences when you're going back and forth so i think honestly the best you know finding somebody at your home institution maybe maybe somebody else that's on a committee that that is uh, i think that's been my the most successful that i've seen <laughs> awesome. yeah i feel like you know, before we were even like getting on air, you had mentioned sort of like this path you had taken, um, I guess, with getting into some inroads into like humanitarian work. You were saying, I guess, that you were at University of Wisconsin and then you took, I guess, some time to go to India to do work. I guess some, if we could use it as like a segue to talk about some of the work you're doing in Guatemala, I'd be curious. Yeah, I, you know, I think everybody, you know, folks that get interested in international medicine have some reason usually or some jumping off point and for me i had never uh never really traveled outside of the country um a friend of mine after i finished college and before med school um had been to india to work at this uh missions hospital outside of mumbai and said hey why don't why don't, why don't you go with me this summer and i was like you know I've never been out of the country and I said, sure. And, you know, traveled as a 21 year old to India and it was, you know, eye opening in many ways, but um, great opportunity to just see life and culture and medicine outside of the United States. And so um, that kind of got my interest there. And I've done kept up with a lot of the stuff in India, made a lot of trips there and, and helps when I can. And certainly a lot of the trips were for me, right? I was in training. I did it. I went there in med school and I um, before med school and during med school and then after med school and was learning from others and, and have gone back a couple other times, hopefully to, to help teach others as well and, and, and serve others in that way. So um, that kind of was the, the starting point. I, you know, um, in India, India, I think my, I, I realized that it's a it's a i love india but it was it was maybe not the the right place for me to do some endoscopy program there's there's great doctors there i mean fabulous doctors and and i just they don't you know they have great doctors and i, I felt like you know my role partly in doing some of the education was great but maybe not as much as in the service realm so um started also you know just logistics of traveling across the country across the world is hard so i started looking in other in places in, in central and in, in south america and i speak a little bit of spanish so that that was also a draw so um you know so uh, 
I ended up finding some opportunities both in, I, I did a, a trip to Honduras and then I've done several trips now to, to Guatemala. So that's kind of how I ended up moving towards some of the humanitarian work in, in Central America. It was, I mean, it's again, one of those stories that if, if you know, telling it, you're just like, you know, there's just too many things that are, are just happen at the right time, right place, kind of to make it all work. It's again, one of those stories where you think it just goes like this, like success, but it's not, it's, you know, fuzzy in there going back and forth. And, um, but you know, it's, it's been a great experience and a great opportunity for me and, and, and others that have come along, I think. Yeah. Yeah. What? So, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm still, I, I want to be like, tell me more. I, I, I don't, is it like, uh, did you set up an endoscopy program or are you like, you know, mentoring, like, you know, fellows there? Like, I guess what, what is it? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, all right, I'll tell you more. So, so basically <laughs> I started, I, you know, I had this interest in international medicine, didn't have a lot of examples in central or South America in GI, right? Cause Right. Like if you want to do international medicine, everybody will tell you in residency, we'll, we'll do infectious disease, mm -hmm. right? Cause there's, that's, that's what our model for international medicine has been. Mm -hmm. But I would say do what you're passionate about because you shouldn't just do it. I didn't, I didn't like in, infectious disease and I probably wasn't smart enough to do it either. I mean, <laughs> they're all like wicked, wicked smart. So that's no team. Um, yeah. So I, so I decided to, you know, I, you know, but I, but GI is tough, right? Because in order to do what we do best, we need equipment and that's, equipment, you know, yeah. you can't pack that in a suitcase. It costs $250,000 if you want the whole setup yeah. and it's just hard to, hard to do. Um, not only that, but you need like facilities that can clean mm -hmm. the scope. So you're not, you know, have disease transmission or whatnot. So, so I, um, I, you know, I, I just, I start, I actually just sent cold call emails to a bunch of places in Central America, <clears throat> believe it or not, and, and didn't, didn't really hear back a lot. <clears throat> and then, um, there's a, there was a, there was a resident interviewing at the University of Virginia. His name's Michael Doherty. He, he's at UNC now. And, um, he, he and I, I was interviewing him and, and I saw on his CV that he was doing this work in Guatemala. And I said, what, what hospital is it? And it turns out this was one of the hospitals I had, I had sent some email a while back. I hadn't heard anything back. Um, and so we just started talking about, it. he was at the university of, of, of Pennsylvania and, and was doing a six month, uh, as an internist in Guatemala and then six months as an hospitalist at Penn. Mm. And so he had been to, the, you know, he had spent three months at this hospital in Guatemala. So we started talking and, you know, you know, established whether or not there was a need, you know, I said, well, is there a need for GI? Do they want GI? Is there, you know, all those things kind of, so in, in 2016, then I went and visited the hospital, um, and, you know, talked with the physicians there and saw the facilities and all that kind of stuff and said, yeah, this is a place, you know, it's about five hours from Guatemala city. There's not any reliable endoscopy in that area. Um, you know, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be, setting up shop next to another very capable gastroenterologist, but there was, wasn't endoscopy services there, partly because of the equipment and whatnot. And so came back home and tried to figure out how to get an endoscopy set up down there and asked a lot of industry 
folks to donate things and got told no a lot. And um, then, you know, after persisting to numerous things, I, I uh, through a donation with Olympus and AmeriCares, we were able to get um, an endoscopy set up down there. So in 2018, I went down there to um, set it up with uh, with a representative from Olympus in Puerto Rico from Puerto Rico and set that up down there at this hospital. So they have so we had the equipment to do endoscopy. So um, and then Michael Doherty and I kind of have gone down with a team. Then um, I guess three times now and we've had three trips canceled so um yeah wow nurses techs everybody comes along for the ride you have a full load yeah. of staff yeah so we um you know we use like the hospital uh, some of the nurses are, are with us as well um but we've so we went twice in 2019 and then once this last june our last trip this last fall was canceled so um, but I typically have brought one or two CRNAs um, and then three nurses or nurse tech, two nurses and a tech. Or, um, and then Michael was a fellow for the first two trips in 2019. So we had a fellow there. Um, and then a, a retired gastroenterologist named Nick Nickel um, from Kentucky. Um, he um, was on the, those three trips as well. Um, he and Michael had met and he has experienced setting up an endoscopy unit in, in South America. So it was just kind of fate would have it that we all got connected. I, I met him like literally, I met him in Guatemala. I never met him before and he wow. came down. And so, um, but yeah, that's, I mean, we bring, we bring what we can. We have the equipment down there, a bunch of, you know, stuff down there. Usually I try to bring, some propofol to down for the anesthesia part of it and the CRNA. So that's really neat. And, and uh, are y'all um, doing some training with some of the physicians there or, or y'all are just setting up as, as for as many cases as you can for that particular hospital? Yeah. So, so the way it's worked out initially is, so we go down twice a year for a week and we do endoscopies and, and one of the keys, um, you know, there's not a lot, written about international medicine and GI, but what, you know, there are some good examples. And so, um, you know, having a good follow-up process was important for us. And so they have a great outpatient center. They have mm -hmm. really good doctors. They are internists and, and, you know, um, and so we were able to do some education for them on who we could best serve doing endoscopy down there. And then we also are going to start doing a little more on the consultation part of things. You know, it's a little hard without enough, you know, folks down there to do all that, but um, that's kind of our next, our next process. We had, um, we are definitely hopeful that either gastroenterologist from Guatemala or maybe a surgeon down there, it would be interested in, in using the equipment or, or learning how to use it if they don't know. Um, we, we had identified somebody, um, potentially at the, at the hospital, um, in Guatemala, but, um, that, that didn't work out. So, um, but we, you know, that's our ultimate hope, you know, we're, we're down there a couple times a year, 
um, trying to get some momentum on a referral basis. And, and then, you know, we'll see, we'll see where it goes as far as the, the future. It's very cool. Very cool. Is it now, is it, is it, are you doing, because I know you're advanced trained. So is it, is it EGD and you doing ERCP too, or? No, no, we're not doing, stuff. we're not doing, we're just doing E, e uh, mostly our, most of them are EGDs and, and, and you know, yeah. a, a certain number of colonoscopies. I would say 75% EGDs, 25% colonoscopies, but you know, they don't really have the fluoro stuff there and, and we haven't, yeah. you know, <laughs> ventured into there, but you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's fully capable of doing that and it, right. you know, I won't say it hasn't crossed my mind to be doing, you know, but again, you start you start looking at like, you know, logistics. So so mm -hmm. I learned so much in logistics, like, you know, how many scopes have you cleaned at your institution? No idea. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't even could begin to tell it? you. If I gave you a dirty scope, could you clean it? Absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely not. No. So no. so like, you know, I got to know how to clean the scope down there. And yeah. it's not even the same because we don't have metabator system, you know, cleaning things yeah. down there. So, you know, you had to like learn how to hmm. all these logistics. I mean, beyond getting the stuff down there and all that, but then how are you going to clean it? What 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 do you need? What solutions do you need? All these things that just happen in our endoscopy units. We take it for like, granted. Yeah, you take a lot of that for granted. So, you know, you're just, I was learning a ton. I was like, hey, you know, talking to folks, you know, hey, can I clean a scope with you just so I know what I'm doing when I'm down yeah. there? And, you know, things like that. So um, it's been, you know, but anyway, so ERCP EUS hold, provides a whole new logistics challenge. But again, <laughs> not opposed to that in the future. Challenge, potential nightmare. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, we we could talk shop about you know humanitarian. We could talk about Guatemala for for hours, but we have to get to the uh, we have to get to grade methodology. Um, it's it's not. I feel like as sexy as a topic is you know creating an endoscopy program in you know Central America, but we're we're gonna get into it. <laughs> um, so I, you would I guess you already had sort of mentioned. I guess uh, how you stepped into, I guess, the role as like a grade methodologist with ACG. Um, so I guess we, I feel like we should just, is it okay if we just get in some nuts and bolts, I guess, sure, a little bit? Sure. Um, so I, um, I am glad you were here because I am, I am far, I am not a grade methodologist or an expert. Um, so, but I'm just going to start by saying that a uh, grade stands for something. Uh, it stands for grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation process. Um, what, I guess, what does that mean? I guess, how do you explain it to like, you know, how would you explain it to a trainee that's not very steeped in, you know, critical appraisal or is not like a, you know, is not creating guidelines? Like, how, how do you explain it to people? It's a complex kind of process, but to simplify it, I think it's a structured way of evaluating the evidence for a question that's asked. Hmm. So um, it all starts with basically a, an answerable question. All right. And so when you talk about an answerable question, really what you're talking about is the question in a PICO format. Or, so it's the, it's the population 
it's the intervention and the comparator and it's the outcome. So, so you need, you know, it's just, I mean, we do this in randomized controlled trials without realizing it. Right. So there's always the population is who, who you're recruiting and you're either getting placebo or treatment. So those are the two, uh, you know, comparator kind of intervention comparator kind of thing. And then there's an outcome that you're following or, or multiple outcomes really usually. Hmm. So we do that in a randomized controlled trial. Um, but that gets really specific potentially on the, a population or a specific intervention. And so, so the guidelines try to take, or the grade methodology tries to take a clinical question and in that format and I evaluate the evidence that, you know, for or against really mm -hmm. in this intervention. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then I think, you know, so it's a structured way to do that, that instead of just saying there's, you know, one randomized control trial that suggests this. Mm. Yeah. So. Now, I guess there's, cause there are, there like other ways of, I guess, of like, cause I guess you're saying this is like essentially the way you essentially create a guideline. I guess you, you create like Pico style, you know, questions. Um, and then, you know, I guess use evidence to then answer those questions. Um, uh, are there other ways of like putting together guidelines that are just like not as, I don't know, as r rigorous as grade methodology? And uh, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what it was before, I guess, 10 years, depending on whatever organization, 10 years ago, maybe, um, you know, it was basically. A bunch of experts and again i'm not saying that there's i'm not i think there's benefits to both options here i mean i have obviously as the great methodologist i think there's a much greater benefit to using actual grade methodology but i don't want to take away the benefit of not using it either which is an expert can tell you what they do mm -hmm. which may or may not be some of it may be based on evidence-based medicine some of it may be based on their experience um so I think, you know, many of the guidelines before we did grade methodology where you get five to 10 experts, sometimes even more into a room and just kind of answer these questions of, you know, these are the clinical questions we have to answer, not necessarily in PICO format, but, you know, how should we diagnose, you know, chronic pancreatitis? Well, then they would all agree on what how they should diagnose chronic pancreatitis and they should, you know, it's kind of like more of a review article, but a review article done by five or six experts who have their suggestions on how to do that. So that's kind of the old way of doing it. Um, you know, um, I think the, the new way is a, a more systematic approach with a, with a process and a structure in place, which I think um, creates a, a better, assessment and recommendation based on the on the evidence yeah yeah well I'm, I'm glad you brought up chronic pancreatitis because uh i guess throughout this i'll i'll try to hark back to the acg clinical guideline on chronic pancreatitis um i guess i should i should mention you know you know you are not the only author on there there's i'll just shout out the names just to to, to pay them you know they're due timothy gardner 
uh, Doug Adler, who also has a great podcast on GIE, which is uh, always entertaining. Uh, Chris Forsmark, Brian Sauer, and Jason Taylor, and David Whitcomb. Um, so do, do all these authors make up like the committee that then, you know, seeks to answer these questions or like, because they always, in the introduction, there's always like a mention of like the committee sought out, you know, to, to sort of, you know, answer this in like a systematic review or whatnot. Like, is this the committee or are there other people who are not mentioned here who are also on this committee? Yeah. So the way the ACG practice guidelines are formulated is there's a, a, a practice, basically a practice parameters or practice guidelines committee that will, that's separated into sections of, you know, expertise, right? So you'll have, you know, whatever section, like an inflammatory bowel disease section. Um, and so those commit, part of the, that committee's job is to um, basically choose what guidelines are necessary and will be kind of pursued over the next year, let's say. And so that committee meets just like all a lot of committees with the ACGs, you know, twice a year. And the leaders of those sections kind of say, well, well, here are the areas that we probably should be writing a practice guideline for. Whether it's an update of one that the ACG has already published or a brand new one, um, there, there's a gap in a practice guideline. And, and, you know, I think I've seen... I've seen many things moving more towards some of these practice guidelines because it's a it's a good collation of the literature and recommendations or suggestions and all that. So that's how it starts off. Once that's once they decide, hey, we need a practice guideline for chronic pancreatitis because it's out there. There's not a lot of great practice guidelines on chronic pain. Then it's figuring out who the content experts are. So all those names minus me are content experts in chronic pancreatitis, right? They've done research in chronic pancreatitis. I have a couple papers in chronic pancreatitis. It's not, they're not great. So, you know, um, so um, those, those folks are the content experts and, and they're really the ones that drive the bus on this, so to speak, on the, on the practice guideline. They say, what are the questions we need to answer? for the practicing, at least the ACG bent. So, you know, all of our guidelines from different organizations kind of flow along with the bent of that organization, right? So an AGA guideline tends to be, you know, a, a little more um, technical in their technical review part of things. And, and you know, so it, the practice guidelines for the ACG tend to be a, a practical approach. And so the content experts are asked to really take a practical approach of you're a gastroenterologist. What do you need to know about chronic pancreatitis? Cause they know it all because they are literally the content experts and that's what they read all the time. Right. I mean, that's what they follow. That's their like sub, 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 sub specialty. <laughs> right. Niche. Yeah. Yes. Um... So, that's kind of how it works. And so, um, so if they're the experts, are you kind of like, are you the referee? Like, how, are you, are you yeah. like telling them like, you know, how are you, how do you fit into that puzzle? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so the grade team, now there's always two of us on each guideline. Um, um 
not as an author though on that on that one there. So, oh, I see. Okay. So there 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 was a colleague of mine on the grade team as well. So so what happens is they do they kind of formulate that practice guideline with those PICO questions. The grade team then spends a heck of a lot of time reviewing the 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 articles that were found on the literature search. So once you have the PICO question, of you know, somebody not actually an expert in chronic pancreatitis, a librarian, whatever, will off will do a will do a literature search and come up with whatever, however many hits on that PICO question topic. And then, you know, you narrow that down to really the best quality of evidence. And then the great team will go by and look at many of those manuscripts and evaluate in that systematic approach what the quality of evidence is. Okay, so we're, we're collating that in that one PICO question, you know, there may be 100 articles and, you know, maybe only three or four of them are really randomized controlled trials. And so we look at all three or four of those and depending on how rigorous of a grade approach you do, a lot of times that'll be a systematic review or a meta-analysis of those four of those four randomized controlled trials, if that's not already done. Um, and then based on a lot of factors that we got trained in, you basically assign a quality of evidence. So it's either going to be very low, low, moderate, or high quality of evidence. And so we're trying to assess that quality of evidence based on the literature that answers that question. Yeah. Does that make okay. sense? It, yeah. It, 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 does. Kind of <laughs> it, it does. It's actually interesting. So if I get this right, you're telling me that even before an answer has been found to the PICO question per se, you can already ascribe a level of evidence to just the question itself, not even necessarily the end recommendation. Am I, am I putting it? Is... Yeah. I mean, so, so kind of a not, so the question, you know, is going to, there, there's going to be a literature search created from that question. Right. 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 With that population intervention comparator outcome. Mm -hmm. So you're going to find mm -hmm. those, those, any article that discusses, you know, what, whatever that is. And then you're going to go through those articles and say both really, you've got to decide whether it says for or against whatever that intervention is. Mm -hmm. Okay. But then you also have to say how strong is the evidence for or against. It. So, you know, that's what you're doing in those, you know, if you have, four randomized, randomized controlled trials that are asking the same question and coming up with the same result every single time, that's pretty good evidence. Yeah. You know, um, if you have two randomized controlled trials and they say opposite things, well, then what are you left with? You can't, you know, maybe you can't even make an assessment for or against. Right. Um, and then, or maybe you have three to one, and then you start saying, well, it's probably four, but it's very low quality of evidence or whatnot. So there's a process of doing that that gets very somewhat technical and, and you know, difficult. It's basically two days of training to figure, you know, to figure out how to do that. But um, it's so so you're, you're identifying that quality of evidence so that you can turn that PICO question into a recommendation or suggestion statement. Hmm. 
So, you know, I, I'll try to figure out. Um, I can even go to the first because there. I yeah. mean, I have I have the questions for the chronic pancreatitis guideline here. Yeah. So you see I, that I, in the, now we don't always publish those questions there. Um, oh. But in the chronic pancreatitis yeah. one, we did. Yes, we are thankful for that. I, I was actually very impressed because you guys, if I counted right, you guys tackled 21, <clears throat> 21 questions, which, I mean, do you, do you ever get that? And you're like, hey, guys, we got to we gotta cut this down because, I mean, 20, I mean, that's, I mean, that's kind of a lot. I don't know. No, it it's is. Ambitious. It is. And, and, and you'll see different things. Um, that is a lot. Um, the... Um, You'll see some other guidelines have fewer um, than that. You'll see some, I mean, if you want to pull up the ACG ulcerative colitis one, you can pull up that at the afterwards and see how many there are in that. That was, you know, but we, we, we want, we want somewhere between, I mean, if somewhere between 10 and 25 maybe 30 at the most okay? okay that's a lot of work each of these takes a lot of time for us yeah. to go through all that that literature so yeah um but let's let's take one here let me see if i can you know you can you can use these you can use some of these you know questions to see how they may turn into recommendations I'm trying to think yeah. of one that has by the way I mean, GI, it, it's hard to ever get to moderate level of evidence because we we don't do enough or we don't do randomized controlled trials well in GI. I mean, you look at the cardiologist doing, you know, I know it's comparing apples to oranges, but still, you know, there's thousands of people in these randomized controlled trials. Um, but that's why you see a lot of low quality evidence rather mm -hmm. than you know, I didn't even know there was a moderate. I've only, I feel like with most of these guidelines, at least for GI, you know, it's like, it's either low quality or it's very low quality, you know, and then that's where we're left. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, so look at, look at recommendation seven and, and, okay. and here's a subtle point too. If that's true. Okay. Moderate. Okay. I, I apologize. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so here's, here's another subtle point. So it says we recommended number seven and then it says we suggest in other statements. Yes. Recommend is a little bit stronger, and so that's why it's a strong recommendation. So the two aspects of grade really become what's the quality of ev evidence, and then what's our strength of recommendation, and that's either strong or conditional. Conditionals kind of think, you know, like yeah, this is, you know, not necessarily for everybody, but strong is reasonably strong. A lot of people, most people with that should have that intervention. Yeah. Um, so in seven, it says we recommend surgical intervention over endoscopic therapy in patients with obstructive chronic pancreatitis for the long-term relief of pain in, if first-line endoscopic approach to pancreatic drainage has been exhausted or unsuccessful. So what, what I read as a grade methodologist is what's the population first? That is patients with obstructive jaundice um, with, who have failed endoscopic therapy. Okay. Mm -hmm. The intervention is surgery versus endoscopic therapy, the outcome is long-term relief of pain. And so, and so that PICO question turned into a recommendation question, uh, statement based on, so the question should, sorry, should pancreatic duct decompression through endoscopy versus surgery be used in chronic right. pancreatitis? 
with evidence of pancreatic obstruction to improve pain symptoms. And so that's where that question first started off. And it was kind of, you know, refined a little bit in the process to what it ended up being for the PICO question that we answered with that statement. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I guess like, um, you know, I feel like every single episode that we do, you know, in order to understand guidelines, I feel like you really, I've had to really push myself to understand great methodology. Um, I guess what's interesting to me though, is that like, you know, the strength of recommendation is, is interesting. It, it's more of a like risk benefit assessment than I guess I had expected. Right. Cause I mean, I guess there's, it's not just like, you know, how it's not just, it's not just the evidence, but it's also trying to include like, you know, the invasiveness of the testing or like the cost of the testing into, you know, whether or not it's going to be, you know, a, a strong versus sort of conditional um, recommendation. Um, is that, how, how do you guys, I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is like too broad, of, but how, how do you go from that level of evidence and then, you know, a recommendation, like, are there, are you and like the other grade methodologists sort of like, you know, pulling out lightsabers and fighting like to the, like, how do you, I don't know. Yeah, no, we, uh, well, so, so our job is, is, as the methodologist is to do the quality of evidence. And then our job as the methodologist is to, is to go back with a big call with the content experts. And we go through and explain why it's low or very low or moderate or, or high quality of evidence. Um, and then we all discuss what we think is a reasonable strength of recommendation. It's either going to be strong or conditional, right? So it's, you know. And so in general, if you have very low quality of evidence or low quality of evidence, you are not going to feel sure enough to say, this is a strong recommendation in general, right? So most very low and low end up being conditional. Whereas if you have moderate or you have strong, you know, high quality of evidence, then you're like, well, hey, I've got a lot of data here now that now I feel comfortable making a strong recommendation for whatever this is. So that's just the base, the base time, you know, but then you do take into cost and risk, right? <clears throat> so if I had low quality of evidence that, stopping smoking helped with chronic pancreatitis. Let's say I had very low quality of evidence, but some that that smoking would reduce, you know, pain in chron chronic pancreatitis. Well, I mean, we could see how even with low quality of evidence for that, you could make that a strong recommendation because we have clear benefits in other ways of stopping smoking. And there's very little risk to stopping smoking, right? I mean, right. so there's, there's only benefit, there's no risk. So that's where we're like, well, sure, if this is a situation in which you, even though you have low quality of evidence showing that, you could make that a strong statement because there's very little risk and benefit and potential benefit. Right. right. And is that, that's what I want to ask. So there is sometimes some degree of bringing back kind of that old way of of expert opinion or looking at at other pieces of evidence that maybe don't quite fit a specific PICO prescription to make a recommendation a little bit stronger than let's say the quality of evidence wow. would bear out. 
Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a, it seems like maybe there's a way grade includes this, um, very rigorous way of looking at it. Um, but then when you're able to give the recommendations, even, even in the absence of very, very high quality evidence, um, there's an ability to make a stronger recommendation rather than just saying, no, no, we're going to only base it directly on, on the quality evidence that, that we have. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I think the, I mean, the evidence to decision-making kind of is, is part of the, the grade terminology and, and, it, it basically, you, you factor lots of things in logistics or, or cost mm. or, or risk. And, you know, I would say, you know, again, grade methodology is used in, you know, the World Health Organization at a, at a far deeper level than we use in the ACG. But, you know, those things probably factor in a little bit, you know, if they're, if you're going to be recommending something for the worldwide population for screening you also have to factor in what are the costs of our recommendation you know i don't feel the weight of the world on the shoulders when we're doing these, so you know but we we do factor this stuff in right like you you've yeah. got to factor in risk to the patient you've got to factor you know because all of that is is important um and so you do kind of start with that foundation of you know the quality of evidence and all that but then that's where the discussion with the the content experts is Mm. you know like hey we really think and you see that here in both alcohol and smoking cessation in the chronic pancreatitis right (laughs) those were both strong recommendations on very low quality of evidence that helps somebody (laughs) with chronic pancreatitis yeah, right, because right. there's not a lot of evidence that it helps somebody with chronic pancreatitis, but we know that it there is some evidence that it does, that it may be implicated in it. But we haven't done a randomized controlled trial of having some people stop smoking and some people continue smoking and follow their chronic pancreatitis over 10 years. You know, we're not going to ever do that. Yeah. So part of the part of the frustration we I, we sometimes get from content authors is you're never going to have that randomized controlled trial. <laughs> I could see them saying that. Right? I'm yeah. like, yeah, we're never going to do a smoking cessation trial for 10 years in chronic pancreatitis. You know, yeah. nobody's going to fund it. Nobody's going to want to do that. Patients are going to want to do that. I mean, the intention to treat is going to be messy because how many people are going to actually stop if they're randomized to stopping, you know? So the, um, I think, you know, you just, you're going to only get what you're going to get. And so a lot of this evidence becomes indirect evidence. And so indirect by its nature is not high quality evidence. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, you know, you're not going to get great data, great quality of evidence on these, some of these things, but. Yet you can still make a clinical call. You can still yeah. make a strong judgment. And that, that's what's so fascinating to watch, you know, as, as EVM became more prevalent, folks who wanted it to be very dogmatic and very prescriptive for very specific um, instances, uh, clinical situations, as you said, we don't have it. It's not practical. And so this is such a, a neat way to bring EBM uh, living, breathing into our decision framework for how we make these recommendations. It's just a really neat application that, you know, we found uh, to, to make these actionable. Yeah. Can I can I ask a couple nerdy questions? Okay, so um, one I I get 
when you guys write, you know, we recommend because those are strong recommendations. And then there's we suggest number nine in table two when it goes to recommendations. It's it starts with we do not suggest uh, pancreatic enzyme supplements to improve pain and chronic pancreatitis. Um, oh, okay, so that is a okay. That's a conditional recommendation just because it's not. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's it still suggests. Yeah, I mean that was that was because it went the other way, right? It right, wasn't yeah. a positive; it was a negative potentially. Yeah. You know? So, or it was no benefit. I shouldn't say right. Yeah. No benefit. Okay. And then the other thing is that um, you know I wish we had. I mean, we're already at like the fifty-minute mark, so I wish we had time to like go into this like in really painful detail. But I find um, like the introduction to this. Uh, guideline is really it's really cool because it goes to like you know i think you guys really illustrate just the difficulty in writing guidelines when the definition of chronic pancreatitis has been a moving target for the last three decades (laughs) you're like the mechanistic definition only came out in 2016 and like and we're we're being tasked you know to to review all the literature in light of that um so i thought that, that was really interesting but then there's there's even just like the first question there's a line that mentions you know, no randomized control trials have been performed specifically comparing cross-sectional imaging with EUS for the diagnosis of chronic pancreatitis with the caveat uh, that test characteristics of diagnostic modalities are generally not amenable even to RCTs. Um, is, is that just because we don't have like a gold standard for like, you know, because like still like even like histology with chronic pancreatitis still isn't even... Is is that why, or like, can you just kind of, I don't know, break that down for us? Uh, yeah, no, we get a lot of it. So, so, I mean, I told you these Pico questions and those are the, all the ones I mentioned off the top of my head were all interventions, right? Some mm-hmm. type of drug, this drug, that, or this, you know, intervention. So where a Pico question gets difficult, it has to be asked a different way is in the diagnosis. And then what's the outcome? I mean, it's not like, you know, we're not doing a drug this, drug that for outcome. The outcome is really accuracy of a diagnosis, how accurate Mm. that's the outcome. And so it gets a, you know, but you're not going to randomize control trial people into how to diagnose things better. You're just going to get different studies that compare accuracies and all that. So it, it, it isn't, it doesn't perform or it's more, it's a, it's a more difficult assessment of the using grade for those kind of those kind of questions. They're still mm-hmm. important, right? Because we need to know well, what should we get? Should we get a CT scan? Should we get an MRI <laughs> scan? Should we get an ultrasound? Should we get right? What do we do when they're both negative? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's the hard part about all of this. Is like, you know, you have to. It, there's not an easy way to kind of figure these diagnostic questions out, and this is where you know, as you said, there wasn't even a diagnosis, a, a well-defined definition until until recently. So it, it makes it even harder because many of the much of the literature is pre, you know, pre-definition of that. So, you know, I think that's a, that's an area where where grades sometimes difficult to apply. We still do apply it, and there's ways to do it, but it's not kind of your standard treatments of if that makes sense yeah yeah um well i i was i don't know if 
Jason, I don't know if you have any other questions. I was just going to ask for broad strokes about like, you know, um, if I mean, after writing these guidelines, did you find that like your clinical practice changed significantly in specific areas or like, you know, were, were there any like big, you know, we always want the, the juicy stuff. Were there any like big disagree, like, like one question you had to slash out or one that you guys had to, include? I don't know, anything that you can, you know, give us from Gosh, these, you know, <laughs> Not, you would think, we, certainly we get into discussions. Some people have different opinions on different right. aspects of it. Did um, Doug Adler just like close the Zoom chat? He's like, no more discussion. This, okay. is, this is the final answer. Inside so, the actor studio version of this. Everybody has to see each other at the conferences. All the, all the, you know, all the chronic pancreatitis guys, they go hang out somewhere. I don't know where. I'm not, again, I'm not a, you know. I was just the great, I was the great methodologist here, but, you know, so they got to see each other and hang out. They can't, they can't fight too much, but no, there's, you know, honestly, when you, I, I think, I think one of the things I've realized is that everybody thinks there's more evidence than there is for what we do. Yeah. Everybody thinks there's really good evidence for what they do. And when you look at it, when you when you do the systematic, structured, grade methodology approach, you're like, this is low quality evidence. But we, it's just not like we think we don't see that. We see it as no, no. There's a there's our bias is the way we practice or been trained to practice, and you know is based off of moderate to high quality evidence. And I mean, the number of times we've said moderate or high quality of evidence is minimal, minimal per guideline, I'd say. Some, ha some have more. I mean, look at the, the upper see. GI bleed guideline that just got. Right. Published. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. You know, but even there, I mean, the usage of PPI. Yeah. <laughs> endoscopy. You know, yeah. Don't, you take don't. <laughs> Good. I'm glad this is late in the episode. People won't listen that far. Don't say things like that. Okay? Yeah, it's like, you're like, you, you know, you're like, I thought there was, I, you know, I thought the evidence was clean and good yeah. and messy and bad, you know, that's, <laughs> right. that's, but that's, you know, I mean, that's, that's maybe a microcosm of life too, right? Everything on the outside, oftentimes we look clean and good and we're messy and not, you know, so. The behind the scenes, yeah. So. Okay, uh, should I? <laughs> is we that where we're gonna? That's too good. <laughs> we gotta end it there. Um, uh, no, no, no. So, uh, okay. Um, how do we? If people wanna, you know, follow your work, you know, continue to, I don't know, interact with you, or you know, where can they find you? Or is there anything we should be plugging for you right now? Or, you know, if we want to go to Guatemala, we just, do we just send you an email? I mean, yeah, sure. That... Send me an email. Um, there's a, uh, I did start a nonprofit organization called, uh, uh, care C A R E stands for central America outreach and endoscopy. There's a website C A endoscopy.com. Don't, if anybody loves website design, that is my design. It's I'm not a website designer. Okay. So, <laughs> I'll let start somewhere. take it over, you know, I'm waiting for the, for young folks to start doing more, you know, I don't know, things on the website or, or Twitter or social media stuff for, for it, but I'm not that skilled yet at that. So, um, I'll be casting that but 
Yeah, so I started doing so we I started a nonprofit organization helped with it with the Guatemala stuff. But we you know we have uh, we have a team going down there in February. Um, for, uh, we're there's a there's a group from Medical University of South Carolina coming. Um, right. So um, they've never been, and and one of the doctors there, Aaron Forster, get got in touch with me um, after ACG had published uh, uh, just a brief kind of summary of our first trip and so uh she and some team members are coming down to kind of see how things work and and hopefully help out down there periodically and you know ultimately we i i, I really feel like for trainees i feel like gi doesn't do a good job in offering an international medicine rotation and so that's the that's a goal of mine is to try to figure out how to do an actual rotation of you know, maybe maybe a couple of weeks where folks can can understand what it means or at least see another part of the world and, and realize that medicine in the United States is different than medicine in Guatemala. It's different than medicine in in other parts of the world. Yeah. That is awesome. Um, OK, you're going to have to give me a, a couple of those. You have to send me those links so I can you know disseminate to the, right. the twitterverse as best i can, can um, yeah so uh i think that's where we're gonna leave it uh brian uh thank you so much for coming on the emroid digest podcast it's been really fun i feel like uh like the end of most of these episodes i have more questions about grade <laughs> methodology now sorry, sorry. In the beginning <laughs> Uh, but thank you for your time. Yeah, well, sorry, it's it's not it's tough to clarify. But thank, hey guys, you, it's been great talking with you guys. You guys are doing a great thing here. Send me send me the links to some of these. I'll I'll, I'll watch some. And um, as I told you before, we we're on air. I have a, I have an identical twin brother at Emory who does pediatric <laughs> gastroenterology. So when we'll you see him, you could be like, man, he looks a lot a lot like that guy. Deja <laughs> vu. I, I feel like I met you before. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks again for your time and, and for all your efforts across academia and, and international health. That's an incredible contribution. Very inspiring. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for chatting. It was fun. And you guys have a good night. You too. Hang on to your hats, y'all. Medicine is a lifelong learning process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to ensure the accuracy of the material presented, we realize that medicine is constantly changing, not to mention that art comes along with science. In a recording conversation like this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be, nor should it be understood or construed to be professional advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or health advice to treat yourself or others, whether you're a credentialed medical provider or otherwise. Listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice, nor does it engender a physician-patient relationship. This podcast could, should not be considered as replacement for the services of a licensed, trained physician or healthcare professional. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. No author or guest of this podcast shall be held liable or responsible for any errors or omissions on this podcast or for any damage you may suffer as a result of failing to see competent medical or health advice from a professional that's familiar with your situation. Furthermore, this podcast is not to be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a, quote, standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for witness testimony. The views, opinions, and beliefs expressed in this podcast are those of the commentators alone, and we make no guarantee about the accuracy of the statements or opinions put forth. This podcast and its contents do not necessarily state or reflect the views, opinions, and beliefs of any employer, company, medical society, or other entity with which the host or guests are affiliated, professionally or otherwise. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. We do not accept any advertising money. Reference within the podcast and specific commercial product, process, services by trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or other does not necessarily constitute or imply its endorsement or recommendation. Basically, this podcast is solely educational, and don't sue us. All right. See you next time, guys.